Good morning again, church. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the letter of 1 Thessalonians in the New Testament? It's just a few pages beyond Galatians, where Jeremy has finished a series a few weeks ago. Uh, we're going to read chapter 3, verses 11 through 13 this morning, as we begin a study of these two letters from the Apostle Paul to the church at Thessalonica. We're not going to trek through the whole whole series uh, all in one sitting or all in one, one series, but uh, we'll cover a couple of passages at a time as I get the opportunity to preach in the next several months. But this morning I want to give you an overview of, of both letters of Paul to the Thessalonians. So let's read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. Paul writes this, this is the word of the Lord. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And here in just these three verses, we hear a, a pretty good summary of, of both of these letters uh, from Paul to the church in Thessalonica. We could title these letters... The Essentials of an Enduring Church. Now, if I were to ask you to make a list of what things might be on this list of essentials for a church that is to endure, probably everyone's list would not look the same. Even as you survey the landscape of churches out there, uh, different churches seem to emphasize different priorities. Some emphasize the organization, some the volunteers of the church, some the the worship music, or the strategy, or the celebrity preacher, or a host of other things. But a, a real test of a so-called successful church, I think, could be found in the answer to how does it endure persecution? How does a church persist when everything that it stands for is under attack? And surely I assume that the church stands for the gospel and the lordship of Jesus so the question is, what happens when those things come under attack for a certain church? Now that list I just mentioned is, is full of good qualities for any church to have. But the question is, does that church endure when its foundations are under attack? Now Harvest Point, this is a very real question, even for us in days like this. Now, we are not under persecution in the biblical sense of the word. Those are... Uh, words that convey hostility towards the gospel and towards the lordship of Christ. And that kind of outlook upon the church is maybe not far off from us, but I don't believe we're there just yet. I think we have a, a bit of a ways to go. So we're not under persecution in, in that clear sense from the Bible, uh, but we are certainly in a season of trial, a season of difficulty, I think even a season of testing. And so we are finding out just what is important to us. What are we committed to even as a church? We're being challenged. So how will the church fare? Not just our local church, but all the local churches. How will all the local churches turn out when this crisis is over? That's a, an important question. But more importantly, what is it that will guard a church from falling away even in days like this? or in days that are worse than this, where there is clear persecution towards the church. 
Now, certainly a church exists only by God's grace. And the church continues only by God's grace. But from our human perspective, are there any markers that we can aim for in our pursuit to endure with Christ? Are there any factors that would encourage a church to endure? And I would answer that question, absolutely yes. And I see in Paul's letters to the Thessalonians that he would also answer that question, yes. And I think he describes some of those essentials, those factors for us in these two letters. And I would see these as really non-negotiables. Factors that are required for a church to not only begin well, but also to, to continue well. These are the means that the Lord has established for the preservation of his church. Now in history, church leaders have, have said there are really three uh, defining marks of true churches. That a true church has to have right preaching of the gospel, right baptism and Lord's Supper, and then the right function of church discipline. And, and I would not necessarily add to those uh, marks of a true church. I, I see in First and Second Thessalonians not an addition or a correction to that list, but a an elaboration upon that list, a, a, a clarifying or a, a rewording of, of those things. And Paul's letters to the Thessalonians describe what it is that's going to help a church endure persecution. Well, the church at Thessalonica really begins in Acts. So you might want to turn over to Acts chapter 17. In Acts 16, it tells us that Paul has faced some persecution in Philippi. He's, he's been preaching there, and, and the people, the slave owners there, are more concerned with their income than they are with the well-being of their slave girl who, who had a demon. And so when Paul cast the demon out of this girl, they chased him, tore his clothes, beat him up, threw him in jail, and eventually forced him out of the city. And then we come to chapter 17 in Acts, and after Philippi, Paul finally stops in Thessalonica. And Thessalonica was a significant city in Paul's day. Uh, it was on a major Roman trade route, and there was a, a harbor connected to the city. And so uh, this was in present-day present Greece, and Thessalonica then could, if it had a faithful church, could be like an open door to the rest of all of the continent of Europe. Uh, so Paul may have been strategic in his going to this city, or maybe it just happened that way according to God's plan. Uh, but Paul stops in Thessalonica, and this city is even still around today. And when he gets there, Paul follows his typical pattern of preaching in the synagogue. So he starts where the, the, the Jewish people are, and they, they have a bit of understanding of the Old Testament. So he, he preaches to the Jews that, that the Messiah is Jesus. The, the Savior they've been hoping for is Jesus. And they need to turn towards Christ, towards Jesus, and worship and follow him. And in Acts 17, it tells us that when Paul preached these things, some of the Jews were persuaded in verse 4. And some joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But in verse 5, it tells us the majority of the Jews, most of the, the Jews who heard this preaching from Paul, they were jealous. And so they, they took some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking <clears throat> to bring him out to the crowd. 
So apparently they saw Jason as a conspirator with Paul, and there was a this idea that the Christian endeavor was one that was going to cause rebellion. They they took up uh, their aim towards Jason as they did towards Jesus. They they made up accusation about treason and and sought to accuse Paul and other converts as rebels against Caesar, as if they're going to worship another king and, and turn against the king of Rome. And so they caused an uproar about this movement of the gospel, about Christianity. Well, eventually the, the authorities there saw that there was no ground to this accusation, and they let Jason out on bail. But in the midst of all that, the other Christians who, who were not uh, under this um, apprehension they, they saw danger towards the Apostle Paul, so they sent him out of the city under the cover of night, and eventually Paul went to Berea and preached again. <laughs> he doesn't stop preaching. But in Acts 17, it tells us that Paul was in Thessalonica for three Sabbath days. So he was, he was there preaching for at least three weeks, maybe, maybe a bit longer, or maybe not. Maybe he was only in the city for less than a month. That was surely less time than he planned to spend with these, these people who, who didn't once know Christ, but now did. And that's certainly less time than he wanted to spend there. And so in his first letter, he describes his departure from the church as if he had been torn away from them. And, and he wanted to come back to them, but he was hindered by Satan. So we read in these letters a certainly a strong connection between Paul and the, the church, the people in the church there at Thessalonica. I'm sure you can imagine his heartache. He spent these several weeks with these new believers, and, and now he's had to leave them, and, and they're left in the city full of opponents of Christ. Maybe he's thinking, how, how will they continue? How will they fare? How will they last? A lot of interpreters think that uh, the Jews who attacked Paul then went back to the church and accused Paul behind his back as if to say, he didn't really care about the church. He left you. He was just here to take advantage of you. And now he's gone. He didn't really care about you. And so Acts tells us that as Paul continued his second missionary journey, he, he left Thessalonica, he went to Berea, finally he ends up in Athens. And while he's in Athens, Silas and Timothy, you may have heard those names before, they come and meet him in Athens, and, and Paul sends Timothy back to the church in Thessalonica to check on them. He wants to make sure they're still, still sticking with the gospel, still sticking with Christ. So he sends Timothy, go, go, go find out how they're doing. Come back and tell me. And Timothy returns with a good report. They are pressing on. They are sticking with Christ. They are enduring, even through the persecution that's happening there. Well, that's good news to Paul. So he writes 1 Thessalonians. And eventually he'll write 2 Thessalonians. And he encourages the people to endure. He reminds them that he cares for them, for the church, and, and he longs to see them again. And, and he reminds them in these letters that he has important teachings that they must remember. They must hold on to the things that he's already taught them. And in fact, reminder is a good theme word for these letters. At least 19 times, Paul uses phrases like, you know, remember this, we told you, we taught you, you are aware of these things, you received this message. Don't forget it. And it's these reminders that fill up Paul's encouragement to the church to endure. Remember where you came from. Remember what you're doing. Remember what is coming. And if you remember those things, then you'll endure these trials. Those things are what is much more important, much more significant 
from the trials you're facing. Well, the church in Thessalonica is really no church too spectacular. Apart from God's grace, that church is just a regular church with typical people, typical problems, and a typical need for encouragement to endure, to keep on, to stay devoted to Christ. But typical doesn't mean little. Typical doesn't mean slight. And every church needs encouragement to be steadfast to Christ. And I would tell you the same thing, Harvest Point. Keep going. Don't let times like even these open up a door to a scheme of the devil and where he would have you fall away from Christ or, or worse, he would devour you. Be steadfast to Christ. That's what Paul told the Thessalonians. Well, these letters are filled with basics. By basics, I don't mean kindergarten stuff like crayons and coloring books. I mean, I mean essentials, important ingredients that you must have to get through. If you take a trip on a flight uh, to a different city, one day we may get back to flying on planes. Who knows? But you don't necessarily take crayons on that trip. But you do take a pack of essentials, things that are necessary to get you from one point to the other point and back in good shape. And so that's the way we look at these letters. It's filled with essentials that are necessary to keep the church in good shape. What is it that's going to keep a church enduring with Christ? There are some essentials that have kept churches faithful throughout the generations before us, even through severe persecution, ever since the church at Thessalonica. And I see five, five essentials to an enduring church in these two letters. You might be able to point out more, but these are the five most important ones. The first one is faithful leadership. Faithful leadership. Not only faithful to the gospel and faithful to the word of God, but, but also faithful to the, the church. We're going to see in the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians that Paul is reminding the church of his and Silas's and Timothy's ministry to the church. Here's actually a defense of their integrity and their, their ministry to the church. And these letters are going to present an example of, of the pastoral care that's really a, a challenge and a call to every man in ministry to be prayerful and persevering, to be, be compassionate and caring, to be not burdensome, but blameless, to be devoted to God, God's glory, and to God's church, to labor and to work among the church, and to lead by example. So let me point you to one passage in particular, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, look in verse 17. This is the verse I mentioned earlier. Paul writes, Since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Do you hear Paul's words of of love, this bond that Paul has with the church he's speaking to, with these fellow believers. He, he cares about them. He is concerned for them. They are his pride and joy, so to speak. And he could think of nothing better than to present this church full of faithful Christians to Christ when Christ returns. And that's the calling of pastoral leadership, to see Christ formed in God's children. 
pastoral leadership is about working and praying and weeping and studying and teaching and encouraging and admonishing and loving all for the sake of the people in that church, all for their sake at the coming of Christ. Harvest Point, do you know what gives the elders at Harvest Point the most joy? I think I could speak for all of us when I say I'm, I'm confident that, that we would agree that it's the thought to, to, to present you before Christ and to hear Christ tell you, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. Now I will set you over much, so enter into the joy of your master. That is what brings faithful leaders joy. Well, I'll put this list, this essential, um, this point about faithful leadership in a list of essentials because of Paul's words in chapter 5. In chapter 5 and verse 12, he tells the church, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly because in love because of their work. Now, this isn't a shrouded plea for respect for leaders. It is a, an explanation of Paul's teaching to the church, and he's not elevating these leaders because of who they are. He's, he's elevating these leaders because of their work. The position of church leadership is, is important not because of the men, but because of the work. Church leadership isn't for glamour. It's for the purpose of care and discipleship. It's not a lightweight matter. We're in this for the sake of souls. And any church without that kind of leadership is under a famine for a biblical kind of care. Well, if you're watching this, if the men who are leading your church don't follow this example that Paul is setting, dare I say, find different leadership in your church. Because men like that who aren't following this example aren't aiming for a steadfast church. They are taking advantage of the church. But if you do recognize this kind of leadership, then praise God for the men who are, who are caring for you and, and follow those men that God has placed among you because faithful leadership is an essential for a faithful, enduring church. Well, part of the task of faithful leadership is, is faithful preaching, and that's the second essential I see from First and Second Thessalonians, faithful preaching. It is preaching and teaching that begins with gospel proclamation, but then injects the gospel into every sphere of life. So in chapter 1 and verse 5, it is preaching that is in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And it's exemplified in those who are preaching. It's not just a message, but it's a message from men who embody the message. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake, Paul said. It's the kind of preaching that is taken seriously. In chapter 2, verse 4, it's, it is uh, the, the preaching wherein the men have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So it's the preaching where the preacher aims to please God, and it's, it's preaching where the preacher aims that the hearers would also please God. So in chapter 2 and verse 12, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. 
And then in chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul writes, We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. It is preaching that is based in the word of God. So in chapter 4, verse 15, This we declare to you by a word from the Lord. And then Paul clarifies the return of Christ. He helps them understand about Jesus' coming. This kind of preaching, faithful preaching, takes different forms at different times. It, it takes the appropriate tone and, and mood and even a bit of a different approach depending on the occasion, the, the hearers, and the topic. And so throughout these letters, we, we read a different word describing this teaching, this preaching. It's, it's exhortation, it's encouragement, it's a charge, it's urging, it's instruction, it's a warning, it's clarification, it's declaration, it's admonishment, it's a command. Now, portions of these letters may have been a correction of what the Jews had been twisting among the church after Paul left. And in that way, this ministry that Paul has to the church at Thessalonica was just the beginning of what he would later tell Timothy when he's speaking about how Timothy should conduct his ministry. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But instead, they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And a church that doesn't have sound preaching and teaching has no safeguard from error creeping in and people wandering off. Now both of those things could happen even if sound teaching is, is occurring. But without sound teaching, there's no guard. There's no safeguard against those things. So Paul in his preaching and his teaching, he, he is reminding the Thessalonians, remember the instructions we gave you. Remember what you've been taught. Remember your hope. Stick with this faith that we've passed on to you. So an essential for an enduring church is faithful preaching and teaching. But it's not enough just for the teaching to be sound, to be explaining the word of God. There also has to be a fruitful reception of that word. So the preachers preach the truth, but the church, the people in the church, also have to receive that truth. The word of God produces mighty effects, but it doesn't produce mighty effects in people who don't receive it. There must be a bold and clear communication of truth but also a ready reception of that truth. So a church can have a bold preacher, but with hardened hearers, that church will not endure. No, when that word is preached, the enduring church receives that word. And as Paul described in 1 Thessalonians, not as the word of men, but as the word of God, which is at work in believers. Because it's the scripture that's able to make one wise unto salvation. It's the scripture that is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and for training in righteousness. And a church that doesn't value, can, a church cannot value the Lord, but then devalue his word. And a church that claims to serve the Lord, but doesn't respond to his word, has immediately denied the claim. So obedience to the word is necessary. So receiving the word fruitfully and obeying that word is where endurance to Christ lies. That's exactly what Jesus actually preached in Matthew chapter 7. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And I'd say there that's, that's trial, that's persecution, that's difficulty. And when those things came, 
He who did not obey the words that Christ spoke, who built his house on the sand, that house fell, and great was the fall of it, Jesus says. So over and over again, Paul was reminding his people, again, reminding them of his teaching, reminding them of his expectation that they would, they would hear it and receive it and believe it and act on it. At one time, they had received his words when he was there with them, and they received those words as the word of God, which they are. And he's confident again they will receive them again with similar authority and stick with the word and thereby stick with the Lord. Well, fruitful reception of the word leads to fruit. And one fruit is holiness. And this is the fourth essential of an enduring church. It's holiness. In every one of Paul's letters, he spends a good deal of time explaining how, how the gospel changes lifestyle. So the gospel changes hearts in Christ but then a heart changed by Christ will also result in a life changed by Christ. Believers turn from idols to God. We no longer serve self. We serve the living and the true God. And this is the biblical teaching that Christ gave himself up for the church to sanctify her, to make her holy. So holiness is, is what salvation leads to. In chapter 4 and verse 7, Paul writes, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. He has called us to a lifestyle of holiness. One of the best ways I have read to understand holiness is what J.C. Ryle writes. Holiness is being in one mind with God, hating what God hates, and loving what God loves. And so in chapter 2 and verse 12, Paul describes it as walking in a manner worthy of God. Or back in chapter 4 and verse 1, walking to please God. To please God in our relationship with Him. Also in 1 Thessalonians, he relates pleasing God in our relationship with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And also pleasing God in our relation to the outsiders who are unbelievers in the world. But another important aspect of holiness in 1 and 2 Thessalonians is as if holiness is a preparation for the return of Christ. Paul prays several times that the people, the church, would be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's holiness for when Christ returns. So that when, when Jesus comes back, he will see his people living an obedient, holy lifestyle. Now, holiness isn't the ticket to heaven when Jesus comes back. He's not, he's not going to ask for that so that we can walk through the gates. But, but holiness is absolutely the desire of every heart who's been turned towards God. Everyone who loves the Lord wants to please the Lord. No one wants to be caught dishonoring the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes and sees you. No, if, if one has no interest in holy living, then what does that say about his heart condition? And what do we expect heaven to be like? Other than a congregation of holy people. Of people who at that time actually do please the Lord. Heaven will be a place with no more sin, no more sorrow, no more sadness, no more anything unholy. So if holiness is repulsive, then so is heaven. And a person who cares not to please God will also not care about God for very long. So it is with a church. An enduring church is a holy church. So we must aim for holiness. But those who do aim for holiness will also have hope. And this is the fifth in our list of essentials for an enduring church. Hope. 
And this is really a prominent teaching in First and Second Thessalonians. In both of these letters, it's, it's hope wrapped up in the return of Christ for his people. So ten times in these eight chapters, Paul mentions the return of Christ. And here we have this, this positive outlook on Christ's return. Hope describes looking at Christ's return in a positive way. It is a hopeful anticipation of that day. It hasn't come yet, but it is coming. And we look forward to that coming. And how we live shows how we think about that day. Well, hope is the positive outlook on Christ's return only for believers. It's the attitude of, of everyone who would love the appearing of Christ. It's like the, uh, the proverbial light at the end of the tunnel. Whereas when you see the light at the end of the tunnel, you can face the darkness and the difficulty even a little bit more than you might otherwise face because you know it's out there and, and you're headed in that direction. It's coming. But it's so much more than just the light at the end of the tunnel. It's the, the utter destruction of the whole tunnel so that it's never tunneled again. The return of Christ in these letters is, is the hope to get through grief. It's the hope for encouraging fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It's, it's the hope for that God will answer all of his promises. It's the hope of resurrection when final salvation will be realized for God's people. Sadly, the return of Christ is only hopeful for believers. Because these letters also speak of a different outlook upon the return of Christ. For those who, who do not obey the gospel in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, for those who do not obey the gospel, Christ's return will not be hopeful, but it will be a day of sudden destruction, a day of affliction and vengeance. In verse 8, a day of flaming fire, the beginning of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. No, for that day, for sinners, there is nothing hopeful. There is only terror, unexpected, surprising terror. But God's people will not be surprised because this hope causes us to, as 1 Thessalonians says, to stay alert, to live ready, to stand firm and hold to the traditions that we've been taught, to be comforted and established in every good work and word, and that's how we'll be ready for the return of Christ, because we know He's coming. And so we live without shame at His coming, and we are eager for His coming. Hope is an essential for the church. Brothers and sisters, this is going away. Whether in a few weeks or in several years, who knows? But one day, we will no longer ever have to watch a screen to join in some alternative virtual worship. Christ is coming back, and He will take us to be with Him, and we will worship in plain view with Christ for all of eternity. And knowing that, that that day is coming, makes this day almost inconsequential. What can we endure when we know Christ is coming? He's coming back for his people. Well, in these letters, we see that the endurance of any church is a matter of faithfulness. Faithful leaders, faithful preaching. But it's also a matter of fruitfulness. Letting the word bear fruit, the fruit of holiness and the fruit of hope, 
And we must not forget that churches are made up of people here. So Harvest Point, it's made up of, of you. And so a good question is, what are your convictions? What, what will help you endure? How will you endure? Will you persevere with Christ? And I pray that the answer to that question is yes, and faithfully long. I pray that Harvest Point will endure through this day and every other day, all the way until Christ returns. I'm going to leave you with this morning with Paul's last words to the church at Thessalonica just before he signed his second letter. And he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. Father, this is our prayer, that we might be a church that endures faithfully no matter what. Keep us faithful. Keep us fruitful, Lord. Where there's deficiency, strengthen us. And where there's strength, would you multiply us? We want to please you. We want to endure for the sake of Christ. 